Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We were busy trying to drum up interest and negotiating this deal. And then suddenly we realized we needed to sign contracts and we didn't, we didn't have a company. So we had to quickly incorporate <laughs> something and we didn't have time to ponder the name. So probably somewhere around 11 PM in a lawyer's office, we said, okay, it's going to be better energy storage solutions because that's, well, let's put on the tin what it does, right? This is Wicked Problems. I'm Richard Delavan. Did an MBA in the US at Carnegie Mellon at the worst possible time, which was summer of 2008. And three weeks later, all the banks went bust. I also arrived three weeks before Brexit in the UK, so make of that what you will. But banking didn't look like an option in summer 2008. And I mean, this is 2008. This was really novel stuff. Put the first batteries on the California ISO, also the first one on, on PGM in the Northeast. A transport sector can give back to solve problems on the energy side. Or the energy side can do things to solve problems on the transport side. Lots of people after the Beatles and Oasis have tried to break America. What's the grand plan for taking America by storm? Well, I know, I know those guys had better haircuts than me as well. We really got started in the Costa Coffee on Piccadilly uh, in the basement. I still remember doing the interview with our first employee, Ned, and uh, him saying, like, oh, my God, what am I joining? These guys are interviewing me in a basement of a Costa Coffee. But, yeah, exciting time. For most entrepreneurs... It takes years of grinding it out to become an overnight success. And by grind, I don't just mean the espresso that keeps entrepreneurs upright. Thomas Edison said success is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. But Stephen Mearsman of Zenobi is kind of living the dream. Zenobi isn't a household name just yet, but if you've taken an electric bus anywhere in the UK or been in a field at a festival where a big battery is doing the job instead of a diesel generator, or even just had your lights not turn off when wind-turning turbines in the North Sea blows slower or faster than expected. You've actually used their stuff. EVs, electrification, renewables, battery storage, software, AI, figuring out how to make them all work together. That's what these guys do. And going in a few years from using Costa Coffee as their conference room to signing a $1 billion capital raise from KKR and InfraCapital last year, they've been up to quite a lot. Part of why climate tech is different from previous tech waves is that scale. 
Goldman Sachs puts the needed level of investment at $6 trillion per year to get to net zero goals by 2050. But it also highlights why this climate tech moment isn't just about the whiz-bang tech solutions, but also the financial nous and the entrepreneur's ability to pivot that are essential if we're going to achieve those goals. Stephen's one of my favorite guys in climate tech, and I wanted to nerd out with him. We spoke a few weeks back, but whenever I think, man, how are we going to get this energy transition and climate stuff done? I listen to a conversation like this with someone who's actually doing it, and I feel much better. So get yourself a cup of coffee, other baristas are available, and hang out with us. If you do enjoy this conversation, do share it and give us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. For now, here's my conversation with Stephen Mearsman. Stephen, welcome to Wicked Problems. Yeah, welcome for, for having me. Glad to, glad to be here. So glad we could make this happen. And just a full disclosure for the audience, we've known each other for, for a few months. We briefly did some work together in the spring. You've had a lot happen in 2023. You're talking to me from Belgium at the moment, if I'm not mistaken, right? A lot of interest in your space. But take us back from why you got started in this space in the first place. So tell us about that. The summer of 2016. Yeah, sure. So I was spending my time in Geneva and, and, and around. I'd, I just left Trafigura, where I'd be looking after their midstream and downstream assets. So the refineries, the import oil terminals, and helping manage the risk and, and, and optimize how we physically uh, dealt with everything, which was very interesting. But eventually I had decided to leave that. I was doing freelance advisory and I had a phone call from somebody I'd worked with in the past, James Basson, saying, oh, Stephen, you really need to meet this friend of mine, Nicholas Beatty. He's fighting his neighbors from putting up a wind farm by putting up some solar farms himself to take the capacity out of the wires. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And they've put the first batteries on it in the UK. And we think we can, well, he thinks he might be able to turn that into, into a business. Well, are you interested? So flew to London, met, met Nicholas. And yeah, somehow things went really quick. And suddenly we're working together 24-7 to try and, well, raise funding from private equity infrastructure funds. At the same time, do this deal to buy the initial battery portfolio that Inesco had built, but was struggling to find a finance for. And mm -hmm. initially, it was really focused on uh, distribution-connected grid-scale storage. We realized that people were using aggregators to get to a firm frequency response, which was the main product, and just go after low-hanging fruit, but that these batteries could do a lot more. So we started investing in our own software and that really accelerated us to, I'd say, two directions. One is the great scale transmission connected stuff where we're trying to get more of the wind energy from Scotland down to England where it can be consumed or, or solving other bottlenecks as well as the, the fleet offering. But before we get there, I mean, frankly, it didn't even start. I mean, that Paddington office, well, Sheldon Square, was, which was basically the, the lobby of the Microsoft office. That was a step up. I mean, we really got started in the Costa Coffee on Piccadilly uh, in the basement. I still remember doing the interview with our first employee, Ned, and uh, him being like, oh my God, what am I joining? These guys are interviewing me in a basement of a Costa Coffee. But yeah, exciting times. Everyone loves these kind of stories. So it's the idea that you've come from that to your, your new prems in Charing Cross with your 250 employees and uh, your global reach and lots of new partners, but we want to get to that. But first, I mean, these early years, you had spent some time working in energy storage in the States, correct? Yeah, I originally did an engineering degree in Belgium, electrical mechanical, 
then did an MBA in the US at Carnegie Mellon at the worst possible time, which was summer of 2008. And three weeks later, all the banks mm -hmm. went bust. I also arrived three weeks before Brexit in the UK, so make of that what you will. But banking didn't look like an option summer 2008, so I started looking at alternative means of paying for that expensive degree. And I started right. talking to two very inspiring individuals, Chris Shelton and John Zaranchik, who were trying to set up an energy storage business in the US. And I mean, this is 2008. This was really novel stuff. Put the first right. batteries on the California ISO, also the first one on, on PGM in the Northeast. Uh, we then did the first battery in Chile. I mean, this was really novel stuff. And on one side was helping mm -hmm. them. On the software side, with technical problems and on the other side, trying to get as much money out of the Obama smart grid loan program as we possibly could. And, and that's been the, the red thread throughout the career of trying to blend the engineering and the, the, the financial aspects of, of things. So the Nobi in a way was, was coming full, full circle for me. And I think that theme of getting different capabilities together to do something's really been, I think, one of the success factors of the business with Nicholas coming with the banking background. James really understanding the regulatory environment and the utility environment and myself coming from the engineering and the trading side. That was a powerful mix. And actually, if you look at the recruiting we've done since then, we've continued to add people with their own deep expertise, but mm. trying to solve a, a common problem, which is how do we rapidly decarbonize our energy and our transport system? Right. And I think... Most people have previously thought of them as being very separate things. I think one of the, the things that's interesting about the moment that we're in, I've got enough gray hair, I can say this, so I, I can go back to 2004 and hearing Amory Lovins from what was formerly Rocky Mountain Institute at that point, it's now been rebranded as RMI, talking about this crazy idea of having all these vehicle fleets of EVs and they'd have these extra batteries and someday we'd connect them all to the grid and we'd be able to draw power back and forth as needed depending on demand and supply and all from renewables. And that sounded like sci-fi stuff back in 2004. But here we are, 2023, and more and more people seem to recognize the fact that the transport and energy sectors are merging because ultimately people are just building chassis around batteries at this point and calling them cars or calling them buses. Look. And in a way, that's nothing new, right? If you look at the energy system, it was interconnected, if not as interwoven as they're going to be in the future. But if you look at it, we had CNG and LPG cars and, and rickshaws and all that sort of stuff. Already, mm. the fuel that turns, well, that we consume is diesel or petrol, which comes from a refinery, which in some cases, lots of oil and fuel is still burned in power plants as well. So the links were there. They were just further upstream and not as tight. Mm. Now, obviously, with the electrify everything mandate, it's becoming a lot clearer and also the interchangeability is becoming more interesting because before we were just consumers and competing for resource. But now, as you mm. said, the transport sector can give back to solve problems on the energy side or the energy side can do things to solve problems on the transport side. And I think that's right. where, yeah, as a, as a reformed trader, shall we say, the excitement is because when you've got that optionality, there's, yeah, there's magic that can be done to, to drive down the cost of the whole system. And a key for that seems to be, and you, you mentioned this when you said one of the things that you did initially was looking at this software layer. And obviously that's so vital in terms of being able to actually balance different systems, connect them differently and in, in the flexibility that people couldn't have before. So, so take us back to it's 2016. You guys are just getting started. What's the problem you set out to solve? I mean, decarbonizing the energy system is, is that's a big thing, but like, where were the initial ones where you're like, yeah, we're going to knock down this problem and this problem in what? order to be able to get us going. 
Well, the initial thing was the UK is an island. We can't fix that. There's some interconnection electrically to other countries, but with the the one thing UK has done really well was really encourage the renewable build out in terms of wind and solar back in the beginning. I mean, there were some course corrections mm-hmm. required along the way, but that went really well. Now we extrapolated from there and said, well, if we've already got stability issues on the grid, even in a completely thermal system, that's only going to get worse as these renewables, even without subsidies, start competing inert thermal inertia systems to death. So something, right. there's going to be need for stability and flexibility. So that was really the central thesis said, well, having batteries at key locations that can provide that stability will allow us to get more renewables on the system. That was what we initially set out to do. And then we all re- also realized there was a real financial gap there in the sense that people just couldn't work out how to finance it. I mean, all the big institutions told us it's too small, too new, and too merchant, I meaning too mm. volatile in terms of unpredictable in terms of income streams, because you can't sign a 15-year PPA or a 10-plus-year CFD or there are rocks or fits for batteries. And well, it doesn't really generate how does it work. So we actually had to do a lot of work getting the banks and everyone. And in, in the end, we, we ended up getting funded by friends, family, and fools, as they say. Hopefully not too many of the latter. And on the banking side, we really spent a lot of energy trying to get the banks along to get the cost of capital down because that's what we felt was really needed to get this moving at scale later on. And we initially said, look, you finance diesel generators. Well, actually, battery is a bit like a diesel generator in this, 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 and this way. And here's a tiny bit that it's different. And that's how we slowly, slowly got them along the journey and sent in their NetWest and Lloyds were some of the sort of the the primary moves and followers in, in that space. And the other, the other, so looking at kind of grid level storage, right? Solving this and again, a meta problem. And you've got like yesterday, I think the BBC story was out based on some figures from Carbon Tracker, looking at the amount of curtailment from wind that's actually starting to ramp up. And I think their, their estimate was 40 pounds to every, every household bill being added this year because of curtailment fees. And that figure is probably going to rise unless they can solve in here in the UK, some of the bottleneck when it comes to actually getting more storage, more other stuff on the line. You guys are playing a, a big role in helping to that do that build out. I know that your co-founder, Nicholas, was one of the contributors to the recently released UK st- battery storage strategy that came out. So it's every, all the stars seem to have aligned. But while you were doing that, of course, you then worked with customers like National Express, where you came up with this concept for e-transport as a service essentially, to help electrify a lot of these fleets. So maybe maybe tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, that's funny how that happened as well. I mean, that sort of started on the back of a conversation as an coincidental introduction as, as all good things. So back in 2016, so we'd got the door slammed in our face from pretty much every fund in the city. We'd pivoted to raising money from from private individuals and... We had gotten in touch with one of Transport's great legends, Brian Suter's fund, and they said, look, this isn't really directly transport related, so we're not really interested. And But they, they were so kind to introduce me to Ken Scott, who was the engineering director at Alexander Dennis, which was obviously one of their, their investments, and got on a call with him, sort of said, oh, we buy a lot of BYD batteries, you buy a lot of BYD batteries. Uh, is there anything we can do together? And we sketched out almost like this picture of saying, oh, well, 10 years down the line, when there's going to be loads of buses connected to the grid, you're going to have all these issues that you can't charge them or you can't get power that last mile in to, to, to get it into the vehicles. And there's going to be the need for battery solutions, et cetera, et cetera. And then obviously, as with many things, it went a lot 
we, we had that conversation and nothing happened with that. We did the initial battery right. deal in, in Sept 2017, started the company, got going. And then about, we stayed in touch and met, met some other people in the bus industry. And then suddenly, two years later, we got a phone call saying, well, guess what? It's not going to be 10 years because we've got nine buses outside of Guildford and we can't get them charged because the, the utility is saying it's going to cost an absolute fortune and it's going to take years and this contract needs to go live. And, and we eventually ended up putting a small Tesla battery in a stagecoach depot, getting a small grid connection that was cheap and readily available, and then offering what became charging as a service because the customer said, well, we're sitting here at a table with utilities, various vendors, and everyone's doing this when something goes wrong. They wanted a single throat to choke, and we volunteered. So we said, look, we'll guarantee your vehicle, go-. similar to what we did with the banks in a way, say, look, this can look like mm-hmm. a diesel bus. We'll guarantee it goes out on time with enough charge and you just pay sort of a, a service fee and, and we'll fund all of it. And I think that's where oh. the finance and the engineering comes together. In the end, it's all about managing and allocating risk, right? So you want to allocate the right. risk to the party that's best place to manage it. And being the battery experts and the grid experts, we were bringing new capabilities to, yeah, to the transport sector or taking the residual bits of risk that the operator, the bank and the vendors didn't want to take. And that's led to, I mean, you guys have an insane kind of market share, right? I mean, like it's 25% of the buses, the electric buses in this, in the UK anyway. Plus you you guys are, I think, the largest owner operator also in Oz and New Zealand, or at least that was true at one point, <laughs> according, to your, according to your literature. But it's something that, so the concept itself, branching to these different sectors, partly by accident, <clears throat> I see recently you've also done things in terms of Shore power with with shipping in terms of people tying up and and not running their their diesel engine to you know continue to power the boat and I think I saw that a cement mixer so heavy heavy trucks as well heavy lorries and uh, film is part film, of that film film recordings we did Fast and the Furious the Crown we supported a coronation we did a variety of other things with with Second Life batteries coming off our vehicles and I think. The way we're looking at it now that we've we've branched into these two segments, we actually realized it wasn't just the grid capabilities that were linked. It was also the fact that um, at some point the batteries will come off, off the vehicles because they don't have the range anymore and you can then use them in a second life. Now, we initially thought they would go into our grid-scale storage sites, but battery cost came down quite a lot. Um, but we found that there's other applications like using the second life batteries to go back into bus depots as a stationary battery to to further unblock the grid or going into other hard to decarbonize sectors like going into the trucking space or film studios, construction sites, short ship power. And and the main goal there is reduce the need for diesel, offer a service uh, and help people also save money while they are decarbonizing. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's one of the perhaps cynical assumptions uh, from a Zenobi perspective, which is that if you want it to be ecologically sustainable and you want it to be adopted at scale today, then it has mm. to be financially sustainable or advantageous to do so. Um, well, I mean, I, I think that I think that just makes sense. I, I think that the the difference now from maybe when you were trying to scrape around to get some money out of the Obama administration is that there is this kind of systems level approach of understanding that if there's all the goodwill in the world is terrific, but unless it's married with the kind of enlightened self-interest that makes you see that it's actually, there's a way of unblocking these things. That's what you guys seem to be, keeps to your core skill as a company is finding these situations that 
are partly about technology, but are really about business process and about money and figuring out how do you actually rearrange things in order to be able to actually make something happen that everyone else otherwise is, as you say, just going like this. Yeah, and I think that's where you turn a legal problem into an engineering problem or an engineering problem into a finance problem or a finance problem into something, a process problem. And I think that's that. That's right. why the own the own and operate model is really key to that because if you if you don't own the assets, then the customers say, well, what's your skin in the game, to, to use that horrible phrase? But also it allows you that flexibility to to take that risk, right? If we say, well, we believe we can charge your vehicles with half the grid connection you think you need, well, you're probably not going to sign up on that if I'm going to walk away the moment after I've built the thing, right? But if I'm on the hook for 15 years for service credits, then you might take, yeah, you might take a different view. So I think that's where, yeah, we firmly believe in, in, in the sort of bringing those skill sets together. Right. So, I mean, again, so when you were back at, this is 2008, you, you're just looking at battery storage for the first for the first time at starting to scale in the States. So I mentioned RMI. RMI last week put out this report talking about the fact that the the S-curve for batteries in general, again, agnostically looking at different sectors, whether it's stationary storage in terms of grid or it's EVs in terms of just passenger vehicles or trucks or indeed shipping, maritime, planes, et cetera, looking out even further on, on their kind of prediction. And they talk about a domino effect and they talk about, again, the ridiculously crushing down of price on the battery packs themselves and even the components of it. I mean, we we went through a weird thing a year ago where lithium was uh, carbide was at some insane level 16, per ton. 16 and now times the price of what it was at the low. But even today, it's still about four times the price that it was at its last low. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's but it's 81% down on the year, right? And so uh, over 12 months. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Which is like basically saying, this is a market that it seems like people just don't understand yet in terms of these different commodities and how they're all coming together. But so, I mean, so that's given you the sets the stage for you guys are standing at the kind of the base of this curve that's now going like this, your position in different sectors. And now in 2023, the company has now raised from a private equity fund and from other, other funds a you know, it's I'm looking at sifted the FT's startup kind of brand media thing, and you guys are the top raise in Europe this year uh, by a long yeah. stretch. Yeah, I mean, we don't try, we try not to rest on our laurels, but it was interesting when a, a private equity friend of mine forwarded a chart of money raised in Europe in the clean tech space, and there was a call out 
that they took out Zenobi because it distorted the charts, which was, was I mean, uh, it's a nice it's a nice problem to have from your point of view, I guess. But the question is, like, so what what's all this money for? Well, it comes back to the the own and operate model, right? I mean, if you're funding buses or grid scale storage assets and you're earning a return over the next fifteen to twenty years, that ties up a lot of capital. So that's that's one thing. So if you look at where we are now with about, I think, 1,200 uh, vehicles on the road, about 400-something megawatt hours in operation, we're planning to build out another three gigawatt hours across the UK, but also in other countries. On the bus side, plan is to at least double next year. We're expanding, as you said, into truck and other heavy-duty markets. We've got customers dragging us into Australia, Finland, Belgium, Netherlands, US, and, and a bunch of other places. You you need the the capsule. I think one one of the things I would say though is we've been very proud of is we've always been default alive to use some I guess Y Combinator speak, but we always made sure that from the moment we bought the assets in twenty seven Feb twenty seventeen, we made sure that we could pay every of our obligations through cash flows, which is a bit old fashioned, right? We weren't burning through equity. And I think that's something that we've we've kept going as we scaled. I won't say that we didn't have to sometimes put some money back in or me, Nicholas and James not taking any salaries for a couple of months in the early days. But mostly we've been able to keep that going. And I think that's quite important in volatile markets or the volatile environment we find ourselves in with supply chain issues, pandemics and, and all that other stuff. It's made us more resilient. And I think that's, we could have grown a lot faster, but again, it wouldn't have been sustainable growth. So I think that's, that's and, also and- important to keep in mind. And so you're going from a 400 odd megawatt portfolio to a three gigawatt portfolio. You're going to double next year. Is that in terms of people, in terms of revenue, in terms of gigawatt hours, in terms of ca- that's, yeah. yeah, capital deployed, assets on the road, revenue, those types of metrics. I think in terms of team, we're obviously still hiring at the moment, but I do think that we are starting to see that in order, we're not just growing anymore, we're scaling. So getting having a stable platform and, and being able to process a greater volume of that. I mean, there's still a lot of investment happening in seed software and the data side of things. Initially, it was all about, well, the business development and the, the tech sales side. Then you had to go for the, the, the bottleneck move to delivery, the procurement, project managers, and obviously the bottlenecks move to operations as uh, the number of sites yeah, doubles every year. Or we add complexity by being in, in different markets. I think that's that area and product is really where we're still uh, investing uh, quite a bit. Okay. So, I mean, I, w- I want to come back to looking at the future in a second, but I have to take you back to the, the name, right? So when you guys started out, I was listening to Rob Long talking to someone else. I, I think it was Moto actually talking yeah. to Q over there about, about the, him signing up as employee number four or, or as the fourth longest in terms of longevity of the people who were from the beginning, other than the founders. And that it was called Best Limited when he was joining, but it wasn't particularly the sexiest name. But so why the name change? And I know the story, but like, tell me why Zenobi is the name of the company. Yeah. Well, first is why Best, right? So we were busy trying to drum up interest and negotiating this deal. And then suddenly we realized we need to sign contracts and we didn't, we didn't have a company. So we had to quickly incorporate <laughs> something. And we didn't have time to ponder the name. So probably somewhere around 11 p.m. in a lawyer's office, we said, okay, it's going to be better energy storage solutions because that's, well, let's put on the tin what it does, right? 
Uh, That's probably also a bit what you get when you have engineers and bankers sitting together. The marketing doesn't necessarily get as much attention. Now, the problem, the reason for the name change was actually a pragmatic one. When you're buying lots of battery energy storage systems, which also gets abbreviated to mm. BATS, it started to just get way too confusing. Um, right. Now, why is an OB? I think my two English colleagues looked really hard to name us after a, an English scientist or engineer, but all the... The good names were taken and Rutherford or whatever doesn't roll off the tongue as well as uh, Zenobi. And it turned out he's mm. the uh, 34th most famous Belgian. And as a Belgian, I would struggle to name the other 33 if you exclude footballers in the Premier League. But he had an interesting story. Self-taught, developed the first electric dynamo or improved it. Allegedly mentored Nikola Tesla for a while. But then he moved from Belgium to England to electrify all the mm. lighthouses in Kent. So we thought that was some nice, interesting, different touch points. And then the name for, for those of you who are into their Latin means child of Zeus. And he was always throwing lightning bolts around. So we quite liked that as well. Well, I didn't know about that part of the story. But yeah, I, I did know that he had developed or rather had improved, like you say, the one of the first viable electric motors. And yeah. looking up a DC current to something that would then spin and go, oh, we, yeah. we could probably do something with that, which is cool. So yeah, because I think that many people, again, even though, I was watching The Current War mm -hmm. on the recommendation of Suganda Srivastava from Oxford. I've had a couple of grass before and, and seeing Nikola Tesla. And then like, no one's ever going to hear of you again, buddy. And then, of course, you can, can't, can't really get away from the name. So hope, are, are you hoping that Zenobi is going to become as ubiquitous and as famous now for your efforts as, uh, as Nikola Tesla's research? Well, I hope we, I hope we all don't, won't die penniless. Uh, that's for one. But like uh, Nikola did, but or um, in the streets of uh, whatever city it was. But the, I think we're not too focused on that. I think we're just very much focused on, um, well, trying to improve the service to our customers, doing more, right? I think we've had a tendency to only talk about things that we've done rather than what we're hoping to do. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather just keep doing that and focus on to the next thing. And, and as long as we're solving interesting mm -hmm. problems for our customers, proving our value add, the rest will take care of it uh, of itself. What is your view, though, about how things are going to unfold. I mean, I don't like, again, RMI has this report out. Goldman Sachs has had a lot of reports out. BNF all looking at what the market's going to look like. You guys have taken a position where you seem to have a lot of different pieces of the puzzle as this whole energy system evolution is happening. Bit in, bit in maritime, bit in heavy trucks, bit in, bit in EV fleets and in, in buses, and then you know, on the grid itself. And a lot of your work here in the UK has been around backstopping a lot of this build out of the wind turbine fleet up in Scotland, having battery storage really close by. So what does the future look like? So with your, I know it's not probably not super comfortable for you, but if you're putting your, your kind of future forecasting hat on and looking at the future, like, so where's, where do we go from here? What are the kind of big challenges that we're going to have to solve? No, I think at a, at a, you only need to turn on the news to, 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 to get really depressed, right? I mean, there's lots of headlines that are actually quite worrisome if you look at what's, what's going on, but a lot of those things are out of our control. So you try not to, to worry about that. So ignoring that, what is it? I think in general, there are reasons to be hopeful as well. I think, I mean, uh, frankly, most of the technology we need to engineer ourselves out of this uh, problem is already there. The banks seem to be coming along. The rest of the financial industry might need to catch up and say, well, hold on. Is it, or, or do you prefer to mint dividends, funding, oil and gas and, and all the, the things that come with that? Or do you accept a lower return in order to do the right thing? I think that's an interesting debate that 
people above my pay grade need to sort out. But just bringing it all back to, to us, first of all, I think these things are very interconnected, even though they might not appear from the outside, because you bring down the cost of, of energy, then it becomes more uh, attractive to do electrifying. I think secondly, the heavy duty fleets are the most interesting because you have the most impact from engaging with the smallest number of players, right? Because you've got large fleets that do lots of miles per vehicle and they're big vehicles and they tend to last for 15 years or longer, which isn't necessarily true for people driving their passenger cars. So that's why we've decided to focus on that. The links with truck, bus and maritime and, and, and such and construction are also quite interlinked because many fleet operators, well, build lots of stuff, right? Say a port terminal or other things. And they have mul multiple vehicles, right? You hear a lot about multimodal, but I think that's truly one of the big shifts that, that we need to achieve um, in order to get where we want to get to. So I think from that perspective, it's all quite interconnected and in, in a way quite focused also in terms of skill set that each of these sectors need, right? We're a B2B business. It's all focused on building long-term relationships and then growing with our with our customers. So Again, in that space, that's a lot easier to do than uh, than in other um, in other segments. But in terms of what the future will hold, well, I'm I'm hoping that we can continue to drive down the cost over the lifetime for our customers. Be that by optimizing how they train their drivers so they use elect less electricity, driving down the cost of electricity by on the grid scale side, making electricity cheaper, or through a myriad of of other ways. And I think that's the exciting position we're in. We're sitting in that control room with. Every day there's a new button to press or a new lever to pull to yeah, make it the obvious choice to, to go electric. Right. And so you've got a big footprint here in the UK. You're, you're sitting there in Belgium where you've also got substantial business. You mentioned Finland. You mentioned Australia. New Zealand is another place where you've got some operations. I think Ireland as well. The States obviously is a different kind of order of magnitude when it comes to the scale of the market. But at the same time, it's balkanized in that you've got Kaiso, you've got, you know, PJM, you've got all the all the different regional blocks of ISOs where you guys can play. So what is the lots of people after other than the Beatles and Oasis have tried to break America? What's the grand plan for taking America by storm? Well, I know I know those guys had better haircuts than me as well. The I think the the thing on the US is it's like you said, it's balkanized and 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 broken up. But say you've got twenty-six or so different system operators, you've got about three thousand utilities, some of them regulated, some of them not. Then if you then overlay the transport map with transport authorities or school districts or traffic corridors, et cetera, it becomes even more fragmented. Now, the reason the US very much fits our strategy because, well, it's an electrical island, similar to UK, Belgium, Netherlands, Australia, New Zealand, all the other markets we've operated. There is a developing grid services market, so the opportunity to bring grid services or grid income to uh, lower the cost for, for transport is there. The grid is, yeah, at the trough of a 25-year investment cycle. So there really needs to be a lot of investment. We can make that cheaper or quicker with batteries. So I think from, from that perspective, there's a lot that we've got going for us. I think on the other side, we're not the in incumbent, do I dare use that word, uh, but we're a, we're a new entrant and there's lots of local players trying mm -hmm. to do the same thing. So how do we cut through the noise? I think that's going to be the, the challenge for us now. The team there has really been focused on planting flags with strategic partners. So, And the benefit we have is there's quite a lot of our customers that are also operating in the US. So we've we've got our first early wins. I expect by January we'll have about five contracts signed. And obviously, yeah, with the supply chains, those will go live later in the year. Um, so, Can you say anything about who, who they are? 
Ah, uh, not 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 yet, not yet. But so like, not gonna break not gonna break some news today. Okay. No, no, I get. Um, although Ali will find me uh, here in Belgium for those of Ali or marketing person, so I'm on the strict orders. No, but I think there's a lot of excitement that that will will come out of that, and I think that's the main point: is how do you focus uh, in this market, right? I mean, I think it's BCD or McKinsey that published this report that the energy transition needs 64 billion or trillion, sorry, 64 trillion oh, yeah. of investment in energy and transport. Well. We've raised a lot of money, but frankly, it's still a drop on a, on a hot plate in a way. So there's a lot more that's needed. So the way to focus is by, yeah, follow our customers. I think that that's plenty enough, plenty enough work to to do. Well, I mean, it's like I said, it's been a fantastic year for you guys. Achieved a lot. You've I mean, again, appreciate you're not resting on your laurels about the number in terms of the money raised, but lots to be done. In terms of the, I mean, the one thing before I, I get, ask you for. Some thoughts about, again, as we ask all of our guests for recommendations of th- things that they might have listened or to or read or watched that influenced them. But before I do that, in terms of battery chemistry, it's one of the things that we've seen. We've talked a little bit about the volatility in the lithium market price, and the we've seen this reports about the generic kind of cost of battery packs going down, but really focused on lithium-ion batteries, whereas there's been so much news flow over the last 12 months about different moving to solid state, having different battery chemistry sets, but all of that in the context of driving costs down for the battery pack. But you guys, because you're not an OEM, you're not making the stuff. I suppose that a market where you have a lower price for the pack means probably is, I'm guessing, good news for you. But in terms of the battery chemistry, I guess you guys are agnostic about this, but do you see that the level of innovation that's going into the space is helpful? Well, I think um, initially, uh, most of the savings came just from industrialization, right? That's what was driving the cost down. We've now gotten to a point that there's volatility that's crept back in because the costs are low. So the input commodity cost is is driving more. But I think the chemistry innovation is one. Uh, Other things like before you had cells that were put into modules that were put into packs. Now you've got cells going to packs or cells going straight into chassis. That is driving a lot of innovation as well, where I think... We're also obviously considering as well, it's great to have technical innovation, but what does that mean in in terms of projecting forward, right? How long is this thing really going to last when you need to underwrite it for eight to 26 years, but you've only got 18 months worth of data? How do you deal with that? Things like thinking of the end of life, right? People always talk about recycling. Yeah, you can recycle 98% of the components or in many cases they can recover up to all the precious metals and about 90% of the lithium, but... The other bit is with this cell to module or cell to chassis, there's a lot of glue being used in that, right? So they glue it all together so it gets harder to to disassemble and, and re rather than immediately going to recycling. So how do you deal with that and making sure those messages lands with the land with the OEM? Because from from our perspective, you want to, as soon as the commodity is mined, you want to keep it into service as long as possible before you recycle it again, right? If you could give it a third life, a first right. life, second life, third life then maybe even refurbish it and put it back in again. And I think it was a few people in the media like Libra, et cetera, who've, uh, Libric, who've talked about, well, these commodities could be in use for another 130 years, similar to what we see on the aluminum side. And I think that's that's mm. where the real opportunity lies rather than driving down the cost of uh, mining to keep these things in circulation. Right. We had this went through this panic, didn't we, two years ago? Maybe, maybe, maybe not forced by some other people in other parts of the energy sector saying, oh, gosh, I don't know if we're going to be able to have all these minerals. Uh, and, oh, dear. I've got, good, I've got a good quote from the oil industry, right? The, the, the solution to high prices are high prices because if prices <laughs> are high, either somebody will dig up more stuff 
or somebody will come up with an alternative. And that's how we got shale. And in this case, that's how we get a battery chemistry that's that's completely different from and the industrialization of it that we didn't have before. So before I let you go, thank you again so much for your time, Stephen. It's been great talking. Um, conscious that uh, I'm keeping you from family and the break that you're supposed to be having. Never mind Ali monitoring us with a drone before you say something you're not supposed to. But before I let you go, we ask everybody who comes onto the show for catalysts, things that influence them when they're thinking about climate tech, thinking about climate itself, or just about business. I mean, so in terms of some of the things that might have influenced you along these different parts of your path, anything that you could recommend to listeners that they might learn from? Well, if I just speak about me personally, I think one of the things is growing up in a family business and learning that every buck you spend is your buck and you need to deal with the consequences, right? So that was, I would say, influencing. I'd also say AES, right? What a great company, right? They've spun up so many entrepreneurs and other businesses. Great company culture. There's a really good book from the founders called Power to the People that I recommend everyone to read about the journey of the first independent power producers in the US, uh, which is quite interesting. Obviously, Ministry to the Future, which I think I recommended to you recently from Kim Stanley Robinson, who we met at COP. And I was like, who is this? Yeah, who is this interesting uh, fellow handing out his own book at, at COP? But then it turned out to be really good. Because the, 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 what I really liked about it, he writes client sort of uh, utopian sci-fi. And I think we need a bit more yeah. of that. Like everything reads like doom and gloom for the future. But uh, utopian sci-fi, even like Ian Banks, if you want to keep it to the UK, those types of writers, I think that's quite important to just keep a hopeful message mm-hmm. going. But if I can then do a last one uh, that I've recently found myself rereading is Eleanor, I think she won a Nobel Prize in economics at some point, or her, her husband won it, but actually she did the work. I don't remember what the story was, but about governing the commons, which was a, a riposte to the tragedy of the commons. So it was an example right. of how we can all work together at a sort of systems level thinking in order to, for the greater good. So I, I think that's also quite motivational. And it's it's not about battery chemistries or power shunters or, or other sort of weird and, and cool technological things, but it's still sort of adjacent, adjacent wise still relevant. So, Well, that's a perfect place, I think, to end it on, on that hopeful note on all three of them. So Stephen, again, thank you so much. Hope you'll come back on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Wicked Problems. And if you like this conversation, please share it and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps people find the show. You can subscribe to our newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk, where you can also find more episodes with Richard Elvin and Claire Brady and all our show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.